Dave Mallet. Good to look out and see familiar faces. Let's talk this morning about the graves that we dig for ourselves. Through our violence, through our lies, through our arrogance, through our selfishness, and even through our addictions. God keeps reaching down into the dirt of our lives and resurrecting us from the graves that we dig for ourselves. And yet sometimes I wonder how. Sometimes I wonder how does he find me? I'm so covered over. I'm not just speaking hypothetically this morning. I know what it's like to lie in the dark, on the floor, alone, having built my own well-constructed tomb. As we lie there, is there anything we can do As we lie there, is there anything that we should do? We know that King David once dug one of his own graves with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. The kings were supposed to be out at war, but David stayed home. Looking out over his balcony, he saw Bathsheba And he took her to himself. Then he tried to cover it up, bringing her husband Uriah, the Hittite, not even an Israelite, but the Hittite who was out fighting for Israel, home so that he might be with his wife. But Uriah would not do it. And so he had Uriah placed on the front lines and killed Then there was a prophet who came to him named David or Nathan. And Nathan told him this story because he couldn't come through the front door. He had to come through a side door. So he told this story about this man who stole a, a lamb from another person. And in the end, David said, well, that man deserves to die. And Nathan said, and you're the man. And that leaves us with David in the darkness of this revelation. Sometime later, he reflected on what had occurred, and he wrote a psalm. He wrote Psalm 51. If you have your Bibles, that's where we'll be this morning. Psalm 51. And it's interesting that this isn't only a private psalm that talks about how one man speaks from his heart to God, But he takes it and he deposited the psalm with the hymnist, with the the choir director, it says, at the very beginning. And by depositing that psalm, he made it public. He published it so that we all could look into what it's like 
when we have dug our own graves. He begins the psalm by saying, in verses 1 and 2, by crying out to God, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Let's imagine I have a stick behind me, okay? What, what is the shape of the stick? What do you see when I say I have a stick and I'm holding it behind me? Some of you might see it as being straight like a piece of a two-by-four a lumber, or maybe someone else will see a little curve here or there. But really, the stick comes from this tree. The stick is bent and gnarly and curled. And that's how it is for David as he visualizes his sin. He has to throw word upon word upon word to describe all the angles of his sin. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. It's a word that describes rebellion. Wash me from my rebellion, he says. Cleanse me. Well, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Above that, it was transgressions. That was rebellion. Then iniquity was erring from the way. So here's the path that he's supposed to go on. But my iniquity is I've gone down a different path. And then finally, he talks about his sin. And that's the word for missing the mark. Like someone would put stones in a slingshot, and they'd hurl the sling, and then they'd let it go, and it would hit a bullseye. He says, I'm way off the mark. But even with all these descriptions of his evil, he starts the psalm by calling upon some characteristics of God. He says, be gracious to me. Hanani. I love to say that in Hebrew. Hanani. We get the word Hana or Hannah from it. Be gracious to me, he says. And then he gives this basis. He says, according to the greatness, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of of thy compassion. These are relational kinds of terms. God's loving kindness is his his hesed, his loyal love. He enters into a covenant with us, and he loves us not because he has to, but he loves us because he chooses to. He's in covenant relation. Be gracious to me according, which he's saying, don't give me what I deserve. Give me the opposite of what I deserve. According to your covenant love for me, And then he says, according to your great abounding compassion. And that's the word that a parent uses or has for their child. A mother toward her children. God, I want you to relate to me according to this this relationship that we have. Relationships are funny things to uh, feel sometimes. It doesn't sound like it would be hard to feel, but sometimes... I think it's very hard to feel. I was talking with a friend of mine, and he was trying to help me understand how God loves me. He was talking about the prodigal son. He was talking about all of these passages from Scripture directly through the front door, trying to help me see how God loves me. And I said to him, you know, I feel more like Judas. I'm afraid that my betrayals have been so bad that I'll just be cast away. And knowing that he couldn't come anymore through the front door, 
he came through the back door. He said, uh, you didn't like Gandalf very much, did you? Now, Gandalf was the name I gave to our dog, this black lad. Gandalf was a character. He was a dog of very little brain. <laughs> we would go for walks around the lake, and I, you know, I'd throw the ball in the lake, and he'd jump in and get it, and we could do that for hours, it seemed. But then in the winter, I wouldn't take the ball with me when we went around the lake because it was 18 degrees. But we'd be walking around the lake, and all of a sudden, Gandalf would stop. And he'd look out at the lake. And I'd be down the path saying, come on, Gandalf, we're not playing ball. It's 18 degrees out here. He's looking at the lake. Looking at me. Looking at the lake. Then he looks more intently at the lake. And finally, he's sure the ball's there, so he jumps in the lake. It's 18 degrees out. I'm saying, Gandalf, come out of the water. The first day we got Gandalf, this was, he was our Passover pup. We got him on Passover. And then two days later was Easter. I'm walking him around the lake. We're playing ball. And then he bolts. He takes off. And so I'm chasing him. You know, I'm running through uh, the neighborhood in between houses yelling, Gandalf, Gandalf. Imagine some little kid is saying, there's a little hobbit out here yelling, Gandalf. We go walking uh, back from the lake, and as we go to cross the street, it was always a busy street, and Gandalf wanted to run across the street, and I had to pull him back. I mean, he was a dog of very little brain. He never saw the cars coming. And as we'd go up the hill, I'd often say, you're dumb, Gandalf. You're really dumb. And then Gandalf died. And my wife and I, we were like Mideastern mourners wailing at the vet's office. And we carried him home and we laid him in state in our dining room that night. And in the morning, I took out a pick and shovel and dug a grave. We wrapped Gandalf in his favorite towel and we buried him. So my friend says, You didn't like Gandalf very much, did you, Dave? I loved Gandalf. And then he said, and you're like Gandalf to God. That's how he feels about you. All that misadventure of yours He loves you. Be gracious to me according to your loyal love, David says, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. God does not take delight in chastising us. Instead, he says, I can't read it from there, but Ezekiel says, why will you die, says the Lord? And then Isaiah says, come now, let us settle this dispute. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow.
so David begins his confession. In verses 3 and 4, he talks about his failure. And then in verses 5 and 6, he talks about his powerlessness to do anything with his failure. He says, I'm not a sinner because I've sinned. I sinned because I'm a sinner. As he talks about his sin, he says, For I know my transgressions, my rebellions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, what is repulsive to you. He says, I know I've sinned. I'm constantly aware of it. I see my rebellion all the time, and I know it was against you and you only. He said, well, what about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? There's no question that he sinned against them. But he says, my sin was against your law, your scripture, your morality. There's no morality apart from you. What I broke was your standard. What I missed was your mark. And anytime we do anything against anyone, we do it against someone who is a bearer of the image of God. So what I do to you, I do to him. In that sense, it's against you and you only that I have sinned and done what is repulsive in your sight. And he says, I'm saying this so that you are justified when you speak and blameless, pure, when you judge. David deserves death. He's broken at least four, some say five, of the Ten Commandments. And one of them was murder. How do we know if our confession is sincere? I think there are some clues there in verses 3 through 4. First of all, I think we need to ask ourselves, do we see what we've done as God sees it? God is repulsed by what David did. It is evil before God. Secondly, do we wish we hadn't done it? We always wish we hadn't been caught. All of us want that. But then there's a later development when we really realize what we've done and we wish we had not done it. We're aware of our evil. And are we willing to take any discipline that God sends? That seems to be what David is saying in this passage when he says, you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. That's his confession. But he says, I didn't, I'm not a sinner because I sinned, but I, it's because I'm a sinner that I sinned. And that's where he picks up in verses 5 and 6. He says, I'm powerless in many ways to do anything about this. You have these verses in verse 5 and verse 6. You have the word behold at the beginning of each verse. And it's a way to say you should tie these verses together. They're related to one another. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's saying, from the moment I was born, I had this falling, going away from God, this scoliosis of the soul. And he wasn't saying that his mother was sinning at the time that he was conceived. He's just saying that the moment he came into being in conception, I was bent. But on the other hand, he says, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you make me know wisdom. Even though that part of me is bent and astray, there's the other part. Call it your conscience. The other part where God implants what is true within us. We know better. And it was planted there in the inner part, in the womb, within us, in our inner part. Both of these are true. I know, but I don't do. So he begins to petition God in verses 7 through 12. And these petitions, 7 through 9, and then 10 through 12 are in two parts. And they match his confession. In the confession, he's confessed because of his failure, because of his sin. And so the first petitions, the first thing he asks for in 7 through 9, are related to that specific sin. And then in his confession, he confessed because his nature is bent and fallen. So the second half of the petitions relate to his nature. If we don't do anything about what's going on inside the outside will happen again. So he begins in verse 7 by saying, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. It's a ceremonial picture where they take this hyssop, this plant, and they dip it in the blood, and at the Passover they put it over the top of the door and on the side of the door, and somehow this animal's blood, which stood for its life, would protect them as the, life, the blood was applied to them. When Moses cut the covenant with Israel when they came out of Egypt, he put the hyssop in the blood and he sprinkled the nation and the blood was applied to them visually. Somehow the life of that dead animal made them alive again and they entered in covenant relationship. When a leper was cleansed, he'd come to the temple, they'd take the hyssop and they'd dip it in the blood of the sacrifice and they'd sprinkle it on him picturing the life that was coming through some mysterious way. And that's what he's saying when he says, purify me with hyssop. Now, oddly enough, the word for purify is the same word for missing the mark. Chata. It's the same word, but he changes the vowels in it. It's like in English where we have then and than, right? Than, T-H-A-N. He plays better ball than she does. Or she plays better than he does. And then, THN, after you wash the car, then mow the grass. Just changing the vowel changes the meaning of the word. And that's what he does. For the word purify me, he changes the vowels, and it kind of means unsin me. Unsin me by taking the hyssop, and that would be the sign that it had been done, an outward expression of what had been done. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He doesn't take the clothes and throw them into a washing machine with an agitator in them. They took the clothes down to the river and they beat them on the stones to get the dirt out of them. 
Get the dirt out of me. And I won't be as white as snow here in January. I'll be whiter than snow. This is what he's asking God to do for him. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Joy and gladness are the effect. What he wants is what causes joy and gladness. A word that he has been forgiven. A word that he can enter in the community. And as we sang this morning, he can sing and he's not a hypocrite for doing it. Let me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He talks, I don't think David had actual broken bones as a result of this event, but he's talking about the inside part of him where the bones are. And if you took the bone and you broke it, it would hurt so badly. And he's saying, God has broken my spirit. He has broken me on the inside. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. He's saying, I want to be healed. Hide your face from my sins. I love this. And blot out all my iniquities. He says, I want you to, it's like God has this book here and he's writing down our sins in it, okay? Like a legal ledger. And he says, I want you to hide your face from my sins. But then he thinks, well, maybe if God glances over, he'll see it. Now, there's no book. It isn't like God's really looking at a book, but that's what it's like. There's a legal account that's going on. Hide my face. No, he says, better yet, erase it from the book so that when you look over the book, you don't see it anymore. And then he begins to talk about what has to be done on the inside. Yes, deal with my failure, but help me so that I don't repeat this. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The clean or the pure heart. He says create bara. It's the same word for creation in Genesis chapter 1. God is able to create something magnificent, but it may take time. Create in me a heart that's that's pure, that isn't covered with sin all the time. And he says, renew a steadfast spirit inside my spirit. That, the spirit isn't just an immaterial part of me. It, it is the part where I make decisions. Make it steadfast. Make it secure. God has to rework us, rewire us. And he does that through his word, he does that through his people. He does that through a willing heart. He says in verse 11, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. I think David could be saying, don't reject me forever. And I think often our fear is that if we sin, I mean really sin, 
God might leave us. And yet, in the New Testament, as I read it, it doesn't say that the Spirit is taken from us. We might quench the Spirit, but once He commits to us, that Spirit is a seal. Shragizo is the word. It sounds like it, putting something in hot wax. Shragizo. We are sealed with the Spirit of God. But in the Old Testament, God didn't seem to always work that way. He would often come upon people with his spirit to do tasks, like build the temple. Or when David was anointed king in 1 Samuel chapter 16, Samuel anointed him. That's the word we get for Christ. He anointed him. And then it says the spirit of God came upon him for that service. And in the very next verse, it says the spirit of God left Saul... And an evil spirit came upon him. I think that's what David is talking about. Don't take away my opportunity to lead the nation. Don't take away my opportunity to serve you as you've given it to me so graciously because of this murder that I've done. I deserve it. You ought to take it away. You're just in what you do. Please don't. And the verse goes on, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Again, this could be just personal or it could be talking about his function as the king. As the king would go out and lead in battle, which is what he was supposed to be doing at the time. As the king would lead in battle, God would deliver them from their enemies and they would rejoice over the salvation. And that's kind of the word that's used, the military deliverance that God would bring about. So I think he's probably saying, restore to me the joy that comes when you deliver us and I'm leading the nation. And sustain me with a willing spirit, like a free will spirit that wants to do the right thing. Because if that's the only thing that will protect us, protect me, protect them. And then he makes vows. Now these vows aren't a deal that he's making. These vows are actually an obligation that he's placing upon himself. God, if you will do this, I promise that I will do this. It's not like this is worth that. This, your grace is just that, grace. But if you're gracious to me, I promise, I'm obligated to do what I say I'm going to do. He says in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Actually, it says sinners will return to you. When he says, I will teach transgressors thy ways, I don't think he means, and I'll teach them, do not kill, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not come. I don't think he means that. I think he means the ways that he's experiencing when he has killed, murdered, committed adultery, that God's way is gracious. That God relates to us according to his loving kindness. 
And he says, I'll teach sinners. That's the same word he used for himself. I'll teach those rebellious people just like me your way. And they will come back to you. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness, your uprightness, your good way in our lives. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. I think what he's saying is his lips will be opened if he's forgiven. And what he declares as praise is that I deserve to die. And look, God spared my life. I deserve to never lead this nation again. And look, God has allowed me to come back. That's praise because it causes us to want to know Him. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. He says, I'd give a sacrifice, a peace offering, but that would be hypocritical because there's no peace between us at this time. I'd give a whole burnt offering for a sin but that would be hypocritical because those were only for inadvertent sins, not for high-handed sins. There is no offering for what I've done. God likes offerings. He set up the sacrificial system. He's not against it, but he is against our walking into worship when inside we are riotous against him. Going through the motions, giving money. He doesn't care about our money. What God wants is a broken heart. And doesn't mean emotion only. It means the seat of decisions. You might say a broken will. A will that's willing to give over to him instead of to myself. And then he'll receive the sacrifices. By thy favor do good to Zion, verse 18. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. There will be a time for offering, he says. Now some understand these verses to be late after the captivity. So build the walls of Jerusalem. But they're still metaphorical. God isn't going to come out and lay the stone to build the walls for Jerusalem. It's still metaphorical, but I don't think it has to be after the captivity, after the physical walls are broken down. I think the walls are descriptive of the protection, the defense of the nation. And as the scriptures unfold in Samuel and in Kings, as the king goes, so goes the nation, even into captivity. So how do you defend the nation? David says, build the walls 
Let me be built up. Let me be pure from the inside. Let me be your kind of person. And then we will all worship you. See, what we do, I mean, you know this on one level. We all know this. What we do isn't isolated to us. But when we are so tempted, it feels like this is necessary for life, for my life. And rarely when we're in the midst of it do we think about those outside. This is my daughter. Her name is Hannah. Yahweh is gracious. Chesed, loyal love. This is a picture of her at her wedding. I was not there. mother and I divorced 10 years prior to this picture, 20 years ago. I'm thinking this is important for my life. I'm not thinking about the effect it's having on her. And I was uninvited. I don't say this so that you'll pity me, although I am pitiable. I don't say this so that you'll judge me, although I am despicable. I say this so that you'll have foresight. What we do impacts those immediately around us, impacts the community. We are not alone, although our culture tells us we live alone. We are not. So David says, build up the walls the defense. So David and Bathsheba marry after Uriah the Hittite is murdered. And they have a son. Nathan the prophet said, your son will die. David prayed, Maybe God will relent. The son died. There are consequences to our sin. Some say the son died in his place. David should have died. There are consequences to our choices. One last short passage in Samuel. It then says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Peace. This is the amazing part. Now the Lord loved him. It's enigmatic. Who did the Lord love? Solomon? 
Did the Lord love David? Who did the Lord love? It just said the Lord loved him. And he sent word through Nathan the prophet. Oh, that prophet who said, you're the man and your son will die and now he's back. He sent word through Nathan the prophet and he, Nathan, named him Jedidiah, or Yedidiah is how you'd say it in Hebrew, for the Lord's sake. And the thing to see if you were reading it, and I've tried to put the words here in red so you could see it, in the middle of this name, Yedidiah, is the name David, beloved, loved one. So Yahweh names this child Yedidiah, saying, I love you, David. And now look, there is a pathway for the future. <laughs> Just remember, it's Yedidiah. The prodigal comes back. All those people, his mother in the back, his brother on the side, servant looking on, all those people are affected by the prodigal who comes back. But the prodigal comes to the father. The father places his hands on him, as Rembrandt shows us. Will we come back? Will we confess? We're all Gandalf. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are gracious to us, even when we can't see it. Help us, Lord, to come to you, knowing that if we confess our sins, you are faithful upright to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. In Christ's name.